You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we have The Stand series wrap-up. We've had an incredible journey covering these nine episodes of the CBS All Access adaptation of The Stand. But as we mentioned last time, there are so many things to discuss we knew we couldn't possibly cover at all. So we mostly took episode nine to discuss the finale and how we felt things ended off, but we didn't really get a chance to talk about our series reflection and overall thoughts. What we're going to go over here today are some fun facts that we haven't reviewed yet. Some of the character tropes, (laughs) that's a big topic point we didn't really talk about throughout the series. We didn't want to get hung up on that, and it is a difficult conversation, however, It's always been present in King's work, and I actually think it's much more obvious here in this adaptation. So I feel we'd really be remiss if we didn't at least touch on that. A little bit about character psychology, and then we'll get to some fun things. Our rankings, favorite episode, favorite scene, as well as our series ratings and MVS. Well, let's start off with the critics' views on the series. For IMDb, we wound up with a 6.7 if you average out all of the episodes. Rotten Tomatoes, a 57%. And one of the critics said, despite its promise, the stand miniseries sadly misses the point of what made Stephen King's classic such an iconic work. At its core, it was an epic battle of good versus evil, and the simplicity of the story was deepened by the rich cast of characters. This version focuses on the wrong characters, while diminishing ones the audience needs to connect with most. Nick, the soul of the novel, Stu, the heart, and the two moral poles, Mother Abigail and Randall Flagg. Without its anchoring, it's hard to say what the point is. It tries to fix a story that was never broke in the first place. Okay, that brings up my first point. There's a lot of talk about this series. In general, it seems as though most people, most other podcasts that are reviewing it and writings have pretty much the same problems. What we feared from the very beginning, that the structure, the way they have done things with the nonlinear sequencing, the back and forth timeline, hurt more than helped and mainly in the fact of character arcs and developments, that it was really hard mixing up the time frame, not getting the journey with people, not wondering if they're going to fall on the side of good versus evil. And then some of the depictions, the characters just did not get enough time. And you're wondering why they're here in the story if we're not really going to dig a little deeper into them. There are others that you hear this a lot. It's a version of the story. You need to just take it for what it is and enjoy it. It's different than the book. You can't get hung up on the book. I will agree that this is one of my favorite stories of all times. I really enjoy the novel. But I don't think this is a difficulty for me in taking a step back and separating myself from the book. I was able to do that with the 94 I think it stayed a lot truer to the story, but sure, it's an adaptation. It needs to change things. And I think it ultimately did a really good job. While it fell short on money and CGI and special effects, there's some clear issues there. I think it did well to capture the essence or the heart of King's work and his characters. The 94. Yeah. Whereas I feel this one really doesn't. So my problem is not that I'm a book reader that's upset I didn't get to see what I wanted from my book on the screen. It's that I think this is, in general, kind of a poorly adapted version. And that's my second point is that this does come from source material. 
it is a book that's 40 years old that people love. It's an epic story. It has been adapted before. If the showrunners didn't want comparisons, they could have taken a brand new idea and developed that. Instead, they chose to tackle this. So you have to know you're going to get some comparisons, some going back and forth. And I don't think we would be doing our job if we didn't look into those things deeper, right? I think what the critic said exemplifies exactly what we've been trying to say. Christina and myself have reviewed TV shows or movies that are adapted from novels. And we don't always have this issue. Of course, we always, as a podcast, will go in and say, well, this, this was done differently, and here are the positives and negatives of that. As a standalone, this show has great moments, as we've said in the past, has very beautiful visual depictions, visual set pieces, especially the episodes with Vincenzo Natale on the chair. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that they totally missed the soul of the story. Mm -hmm. It's not looking back on it in reflection. They were trying to find ways to quickly get this information and sweep over moments so that they can get to other moments that probably, quote unquote, sell better on TV. But in doing that, you devalued that pivotal moment we get to it, but we're not in love with the characters yet. We don't even really understand why this character seems to be battling what he should do, he or she should do, because we don't know enough. And the ultimate climax doesn't hold the same weight. And, you know, you bring up a good point here. We said it a couple of times. As far as just plot is concerned, okay, yeah, they chose to focus on different areas than what the 94 did or maybe what I would have in general, I didn't mind where the plot focus went until the finale, of course. <laughs> Everyone that's going to look at this story is going to choose to emphasize something different or connect with a different piece of it. With characters, though, I don't think they did that. Let's go for this bunch instead of that bunch. I really only felt more understanding and a change for Harold. Okay, I guess you could say Lloyd as well. I didn't like what they did with it, but they did choose to go deeper and take that in a different direction. Mm. But that's really it. But was it really deeper? For those two characters, perhaps. And that's a spot where I could say, maybe I would have done that differently, but I appreciate their vision and the way they've gone in a new direction. They didn't do that for the other characters. It just feels like there was a lack of basic understanding for what you needed that made this story so special. Uh, to break down the fourth wall, Christina has already recorded next week's episode, the quote-unquote, and I hate to call it this, but the book club. Uh, I hate to call it that because I don't want you to say, oh, I'm not a book club person, I'm not going to listen. It's not that. It's not about the pages in the book. It's exactly this. Right now we're talking about the characters and what was lacking in this season. In this book club episode, Christina's allowed to break it down deeper and give you a fuller background, more depth of Stu as a character and what he was going through in the book. Even if you didn't read the book, you'll be able to put that little bit of information into your brain and actually add to the story and make it more of a fulfilling uh, show for you. So I think it's really worth it. I'm editing it now and I think you guys did great did a great job because I'm not on it. Yeah, you keep saying me, but I have other guests that are joining me and that's another point that's really exciting. It's a panel conversation you know, relaxed, laid back, we have a good time. This isn't anything formal. But because each one of the guests has such amazing knowledge and is coming from a different viewpoint, they really bring other things to the conversation that, you know, in my dozens and dozens of reads of this novel, I never considered. What we do is we're having three episodes, each one of them roughly following the three acts 
or parts, if you want to call it, of the novel, The Stand. King breaks it down into book one, Captain Trips, book two, On the Border, and book three, The Stand. So we have just finished book one, Captain Trips, and we go through all the major characters that you really get the intro and the backstory of for that one. So it's just one grouping, maybe six characters. Next Mm -hmm. time we'll do more. And then we get into some more stuff like more about the superflu, more about locations. Kirk brings up nature versus nurture. Surprise! Kirk's on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you have a general idea, if you've just seen this show or the 94, you'll absolutely be able to follow along, even if you haven't read. It's just a way to further the conversation, and you should definitely check it out. Now, Jason, before we start getting too critical, because we will do that when we break down our tropes, let's start off with some fun facts. We didn't discuss it, but this adaptation has a long history of trying to get made, passing through different hands, and namely different directors that were considered or attached to the project before we got to this point. So first, there was talks with Ben Affleck. I think most people are kind of aware of that. He described his vision of it being a Lord of the Rings set in America and envisioned it as a trilogy of movies. That's where we started out, that this was going to be a couple of movie adaptations. Think The Hunger Games. I think that would have worked. Three movies. Only if they're long movies. I like it for Well, TV. Lord of the Rings, the movies were like three, four yeah. hours long. So Yeah, if you give me that. Yeah. But that's basically what the 94 was, just made for TV. Right. It was three, four episodes of mini movies. True. Yeah, maybe that's not enough time. I like the TV format because of the way you can stretch this out. I just think you need way more. Especially nowadays. 94, the TV format would not have worked. Mm. But now the way that streaming services work, you can do long seasons and break it down as three acts. Yeah, three eight-episode seasons actually I think would be perfect. Well, Affleck eventually dropped the production because of other commitments. Batman. And then we went to David Yates and Steve Close. And I wasn't aware of this. Big Harry Potter names. Yeah. That's an interesting direction that I would have liked to see. It doesn't talk about what their vision was for it. Our big five or big seven, if they took it from the book, they're all kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they kind of are. They're pretty young in the book. Oh, that's true. And the thing is, they know how to do a story that tackles many, many characters while still giving them all space to breathe. Uh, Then you had Scott Cooper. And there was creative differences there because he wanted an R rating while the studio was going for PG-13. Again, when we were still looking at movies. Okay. Then Paul Greengrass. And finally, Josh Boone. But originally, he too was thinking of it as a movie, a standalone film. Nope. One movie. Can you imagine? No. He wanted Christian Bale as Flag and Matthew McConaughey as Stu. So I like that idea even less. (laughs) I well, have to say. McConaughey, I could, I could go for Stu. I <laughs> think he is not right for this. Like, Marsden is a little too good looking, but gets away with it because he plays the everyman so well. Yeah. He's not too much. He's not stealing the scene. He knows how to be an understated, likable character. That's sort mm. of what he does. You know who would have been a cool flag? Who? You're not going to agree, but Robert Downey Jr., because he can play pompous. He would have done like the a little crazy. funny. Not crazy. It's like the borderline like pompous, funny. Yeah, but he does unhinged. And Flag is a little unhinged. He could pull that up when he needs to. He's not quite charismatic enough for me, as much as I like him. How dare you? 
Okay, let's talk general background for a minute. Most people know this, but The Stand is only the fourth book written by King. It was his fourth and longest novel. He has over 60 books to date. Jeez. Can you imagine this being your fourth no. story you ever wrote? And, and he speaks a lot on this. When fans come to him, there's a couple of things they really like, and a lot of them are his older works. Mm. And he says, it's a little depressing to think maybe your best works were behind you all these years ago. But I love hearing him talk about where the ideas come from, what his inspirations are. It makes sense, some of the things he chooses to highlight. He talked about the book. He said, for a long time, 10 years at least, I wanted to write a fantasy epic like Lord of the Rings, only with an American setting. Oh. We've heard that a a ton, that it was going to be his epic walking journey type. So that's where Ben got it from? Because that's what Ben Affleck said he was going to do. Yeah, absolutely. But King goes on, I just couldn't figure out how to do it. Then shortly after my wife and kids and I moved to Boulder, Colorado, I saw a 60-minute segment on CBW, Chemical Biological Warfare. I never forgot the gruesome footage of the test mice, shuddering, convulsing, and dying, all in 20 seconds or less. That got me remembering a chemical spill in Utah that killed a bunch of sheep. There were canisters on their way to some burial ground that fell off a truck and ruptured. I remember a news reporter saying if the winds had been blowing the other way, there was Salt Lake City. This incident later served as the basis of a movie called Rage, starring George C. Scott. But before it was released, I was deep into writing The Stand, my American fantasy epic set in a plague-decimated U.S. Only instead of a hobbit, my hero was a Texan named Stu Redman. And instead of a dark lord, my villain was a ruthless drifter, a supernatural madman named Flag. The land of Mordor, where the shadows lie was Las Vegas. And he goes on and on. It just makes so much sense when you think about it coming from these places and what he was hoping to depict. But we know that the book, too, went through many iterations. It was first published in 1978. You had asked me a while back about page lengths. It was approximately 800 pages when he first put it out. This is because the publisher forced him to cut 400 pages from the original manuscript. In the preface to the 1990 version, he writes that based on his sales history, the publisher arrived at a price for the book that required heavy edits to reduce the page count. They said, in order for this to be financially feasible, it can only be this long. Mm. So you got to cut about 400 pages. They offered to have somebody do it, but King said, no, I'll do the surgery myself. Of course. Yeah, you're not going to touch it. Yeah. But it always bothered him. So he later published an unabridged version containing 1,200 pages. So I think I went too low on my original estimate. There he included scenes that were cut from the first, including the kid and the epilogue that we talked about with Randall Flagg. And in addition to the 94 miniseries that we keep discussing on ABC, there also was a Marvel Comics 31-issue adaptation from 2008 to 2012, which I didn't know. I didn't know that either. Right? That'd be interesting to see. I got to check that out. What they did with that. And of course, now we have our 2020 version. The big things here being the new coda written by King. We're going to talk more on that later. But clearly, the money, the ability to have different visual effects and CG was a factor here. So let's get into some fun facts about production and visual effects. We've got a couple of different areas here. They talked a lot about tube neck, quote unquote. So this was a problem with depicting the super flu in the 94. I mean, they did an all right job for the time. They only had practical effects to work with. Basically, they just made people's faces look very sunken. Mm -hmm. 
with dark shadows under their eyes. It was not at all the way the book describes it, where your neck would swell up, there was a lot of mucus. Well, this time around, they really wanted to go for that and get it right. So they said all actors had a base layer of prosthetics on while shooting. It was important for them to move like they had a giant neck, so they shouldn't be able to move too quickly or turn around too fast. So they literally put these things on them. That way it would feel more natural. But then the more prominent actors that they knew they were going to film a lot of close-up shots also had a layer of CG added over anything they did so they could maintain the humanity of the people who were suffering, focusing on the, the face. Finally, the visual effects team used another software program that uses real-world physics to create the mucus of the victims. Nice. So it talks about the way the liquid (laughs) moves and making it natural. It's pretty gross. Very similar to what we were talking about in regards to Harry Potter and the fire. Mm. It's a program that uses actual physics for the fire. To show fire underwater. Fire underwater, fire in a cave. Mm -hmm. How How would the fire react as oxygen is being taken up by the feeding fire in a cave. That's a good point. What did they say? They had like six different areas that they had to match up, you know, lighting, movements, Mm -hmm. all these different things. It was cool. The next area for visual effects were the wolves. They did use live hybrid wolves for these scenes. That's what's up. But they were heavily drawing on visual effects for the safety of the actors. They said, we really took the Game of Thrones model in that the wolves are visual effects, but they're not CG. They were shot on a green screen in a same environment and then compositioned in. The thing is, this time around, they're intentionally trying to get them angry because there's all these shots where the wolves are snarling. and (laughs) So they're filming them on that green screen. They just don't have, let's say, Mother Abigail or should I say Whoopi Goldberg right up next to the wolf. They later tie the two in together. And then finally, you have Vegas. Now, Jason, I like this because we brought up the conversation of how did they do this? How much of it was drone shots? Yep. You can't empty out Vegas streets, can you? It turns did. out a little bit. Yeah. You can. They said, we were amazingly lucky to get our first choice and work with Caesars Entertainment and the Planet Hollywood structure as the hub for New Vegas. We quickly settled on this parasitic architecture taking the core of what you know to be Planet Hollywood and ripping it apart, slashing through it, putting glass in it, making it feel menacing. Now you have the Inferno. So that they could accomplish shots of an empty strip, the casinos under Caesars Group closed select driveways for a few hours in the middle of the night, with those cars rerouted to still access the inside, in order to give production a chance to shoot the practical empty shots. So they just took these hotels that they also owned under the Caesars blanket and had smaller areas clear out for a couple of hours, let's say, during one night. Makes sense. Film this, actually have it empty, looking empty. Um, Genius. That way they wouldn't have to paint out. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? All of the cars, all of the people. Nope. And then there was others where they employed the aid of 50 police cars and helicopters to get some of those shots they were looking for. So that's pretty cool. What about the interior, though? Because we're just talking exterior. This was not shot in Vegas, but at the Pacific Inn in Surrey, British Columbia. The first two floors were shot practically uh, from the Pacific Inn directly, but every floor above that was entirely CG. In order to achieve the action on the higher floors, some people were duplications, some were digital creations, 
Some were shot individually on green screen and then dropped into the frame through VFX post-production. And there's an article about how they started to do this and they didn't finish areas. So they had, let's say, one actor on a green screen stage and she would go through six different types of extras and things they were going to be doing, acting it out completely alone. Oh, wow. And then they would alter that a little bit and drop it into a a VFX thing and then duplicate some of it. Okay. So they were really getting creative with how could we finish these remaining shots we didn't get to because of COVID. It's genius. It's a mixture of what they learned with video games and CG for movies. Mm. It's kind of like a a hybrid of both. Mm -hmm. While we're talking about production, I have a little bit of fun facts here via a Forbes article that our clatcher Josh sent to us. It's a really good article about um, Easter eggs, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to pull this out. I thought this was interesting. So in The Circle Closes, which is the last episode, we hear from the show's production designer, Aaron Hay. He said, we had to grow a cornfield. So it wasn't there. We had to find a location where we could grow a massive cornfield and basically buy out a big swath of that so they wouldn't harvest it while we were shooting. Hmm. That's, but if you grow it, isn't it yours? Curious. Uh, the mythology of the corn was really important to that story. The corn can be creepy when you're running around out there. We were going for the look of the crop circle. Aaron Hay also let slip that the field originally played a larger mythology building role. Remember we were saying there should have been more cornfield stuff? Mm -hmm. But its expository scene ended up on the cutting room floor, of course. Well, you know that they had to grow their own fields for the 94 as well. Ah. And they encountered a ton of problems in that it started dying very quickly and very early. So they had to shoot some things in such a way that you wouldn't be able to tell that it was just a bunch of dead corn. Oh my it's goodness. really interesting to hear them talk about it. He goes on to say, let's just say that it showed flag a long time ago in the same location in another form. It related to the way he was portrayed historically in the books. That's interesting. I well, wonder. yeah, and we know now that Hemingford Home was the official setting for Children of the Corn. And thus we get a lot of these comparisons going on. Oh, as it turned out, the cornfield and farmhouse were the easy part. The real challenge was erecting a tropical jungle in the middle of British Columbia for the scene in which Flag shows Franny the isolated village Mm. untouched by the Mm -hmm. super flu. Finding a place that's full of the big fir trees and such is a challenge, but we found this location in a former gravel pit that had lots of deciduous trees. We literally bought every tropical plant we could get in that part of North America, shipped to British Columbia, filled quite a big area, built some very large tropical trees and vines, and then built the village. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) I have to say, I would love to hear some more, and and I didn't get any research with what I did. I think the most successful usage of the VFX is in the hand of God scene, because this is a big reason we talked about that, that they couldn't be successful in the first version. (laughs) The way that the lightning's coming out, I I really thought that they actually did a good job of making that visually more interesting. Mm -hmm. The huge explosion, the way that went up, I I thought it all looked good. Except for when it came to how do we deal with flag? That was the only thing that. But character stuff. So, like the plot sequencing and visually how it looks on screen, they did a great job with. Absolutely. So, (laughs) let me end with this. I thought this was fun. 
He goes on to say, Flag does come back. That was a really important image for us to get. We really wanted to see Flag hovering above these native folks where his power may have even more influence than it did with the people in Las Vegas. That was fun because it speaks to the character as written by King, where he wakes up in these new places, doesn't quite know who he is, and has to rediscover his powers. I also love the fact that Franny gets a whole episode that's really her episode and gets to tie everything together. Now, I I wanted to read this because, again, I didn't read the book. In the book, Flag wakes up and doesn't know who he is or his powers. He always wakes up a bit like that. He's in a sort of fugue state. He doesn't entirely know who he is. It comes back to him slowly. His powers come back to him slowly. We talked about that a little bit. That's probably why he's naked, because he was just officially kind of reborn. Oh, but he wasn't naked for Franny. Because it wasn't real. Oh, gotcha. That was just taking place in her mind. My question there was, how much could he even have had the power to do since it was so low at the moment? Mm. And not that Franny could entirely know that, but they did know they had taken him out to a certain extent. So maybe he could manipulate a rat to bite her. Right. (laughs) He could whisper in her ear. I don't think he could have done much more than that. All this stuff he's saying, I'm going to make it come out the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I don't really think he could have done that. It's been a couple months. Maybe he's been doing push-ups, lunges. Well, he gets his power from worshipers and followers. And until he gets to that tribe at the very end, he doesn't have any. So it doesn't make sense. I like what my idea was, where he's in a middle zone. He's not in the real world. He's in a realm. Mm -hmm. He's not able to become a physical being. Neutral zone, kind of. Yeah, until the evil starts to build up again. Even then, he doesn't have many powers until he starts getting people to worship him. Yeah, the thing is, in all of these iterations, there is still some consistency, though. Once he gets his memory and his powers coming back to him, there's a central flag that's always flag, Mm -hmm. right? Because he is a supernatural being. We get the idea from the stories in the past, though, Mother Abigail is just a human, a human who has been touched by the forces of good. She's a prophet. She is given to have visions that other people can't have into the future. And God can work through her. We're going to call it God because we don't entirely know. That's how she interprets it. Mm -hmm. God can work through her. So when she touches Franny in the books after the explosion at the committee, and heals her injuries there, the whiplash and, and all of that from the bomb that was set off. That's God doing that. Right. And it's not a common thing that happens. It's an important moment where we need a show of faith. When the real force comes down later in the book, it is the hand of God. It's got nothing to do with Mother Abigail in that moment when the hand comes down and scoops up the nuke to set it off. So in my mind, the next time around, there will be another person who is chosen to be the next prophet, the new agent of God. Abigail was chosen, so he made sure she stayed alive. This This is why she was 108 years old. Mm -hmm. I still have a reason for you, a purpose to keep you around. But it's not as though Mother Abigail comes back over and over again like Randall Flagg. Right. Mother Abigail is not a supernatural being. This version... Makes it look and like she is. And this coda makes it look like she is. This looks like an actual child version of Mother Abigail, reincarnated in the place that in the books was her home, Hemingford Home in Nebraska, this farmhouse. Except for she's too old if she was reincarnated. I mean, that kid's like 13, 14. Hasn't been that long. It could be reincarnated. Flag's always reincarnated as a 30-something-year-old man. True. That's okay. a choice. They don't age like humans. But 
she's not even really there. It's mm-hmm. some sort of spirit. I guess that's why it was bothering me, though, that it came back as this symbol as Mother Abigail. Yeah. Because truly, she wasn't supposed to be a supernatural being. She wasn't as important, and she always knew that, as this bigger purpose and this right. bigger thing that they were all working towards. I guess it imbues more magical power, and especially we talked about the fact that she actually lays hands herself on Franny to heal her. It doesn't feel so much like a conduit of God working through her. It feels like she has magic. Now, you enjoyed that. Let me give you an argument to that. Maybe it was God or or a spirit, but it was shown to Franny as a depiction of coming out of the corn, actual Mother Abigail, to help settle her. And a younger depiction of perhaps Mother Abigail in the real world, again, to help settle them. But why? So that's a good point you're bringing up. But then why, when the girl comes to help them, isn't it 108-year-old what they know That's a good version yeah. of Mother Abigail? Because when we were talking about this in the finale, I feel like the conversation in the midworld, as you're describing it, um, or the afterlife, if that's where Mother Abigail is, we hope, that Franny has with her is beautiful. It's perfect when she comes out of the corn and she sees her. That's enough of Mother Abigail. So when she comes back, this child version that they don't know, they don't recognize, like they're afraid at first because it's just some girl who's wandered out of the corn. What is going on here? Any other depiction that they know and that they're comfortable with would have been fine and good or none at all. The reason I'm bringing this up again is not to harp, but to lead us into our conversation of the fact that it's an example of a troubling trope. So that takes us to our next topic. A TT? Yeah. Troubling trope? I love it. And she is a representation of the first one we're going to talk about. Now, the name of the trope is the magical Negro trope. So that you don't think I'm saying something that's weird and offensive. I'm using that phrasing for a reason. The term was popularized in 2001, if you're not familiar with the story, by director Spike Lee during a college tour when he said he was dismayed at Hollywood's decision to continue employing this premise. Despite the fact that we knew it was happening in movies, we knew it was an issue, they kept bringing it up. And he used the word Negro specifically because it's considered archaic and usually offensive to underline the message that the magical black character goes around selflessly helping the white character. It's a supporting stock character who just comes to the aid of white protagonists. So to give you an example... John Coffey in The Green Mile. I brought this up when we were talking about best King adaptations. It's a real stark example of why it's a problem there. We also have Dick Halloran in The Shining, uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance. Here are the points that it needs to hit to be considered this trope, okay? The character often possesses special insights or magical powers. Usually vaguely defined, but very rare. They can do something incredible. They are in some way, outwardly or inwardly, disabled, either by discrimination, disability, or social constraint. The character often has no past, simply appears one day to help the protagonist. The character is patient and wise, often dispensing various words of wisdom or is considered closer to the earth, quote-unquote. And the character will do almost anything, including sacrificing him or herself to save the protagonist. Basically, they serve solely as a plot device. Okay, so those are the things to hit the trope. I would argue, and many people have, that this whole thing is challenged in the books. King might not always get his portrayals right, and some of them are a real problem. We're going to talk about that. But I think he was 
trying to not do that with Mother Abigail in the book. We spend quite a lot of time inside her head, getting her point of view perspective. She is another character just like Franny and Stu and Larry. We hear about her childhood. We talked about this throughout the adaptation. We hear about her human backstory, the suffering, the losses she's gone through, the fact that she really doesn't want to still be around when everyone she's lost is gone. And it's hard to be 108 years old. She doesn't have a choice. This isn't something that she chose or decided upon. And her self-doubt complicates the situation in the second act. She starts questioning herself. She goes off on this journey that doesn't make a lot of sense to anybody. She's dealing with her own shit, basically. She's not just there to serve the other character's story. Now, this is where it becomes a problem. Actor Jonathan Braylock talked a lot about this trope. And he said, Hollywood has a long history of portraying people of color as preternaturally wise or exoticized figures whose only function is to assuage white guilt or make pithy statements about our collective humanity. People will feel more comfortable with this story if they don't have to recognize the full humanity of the character. They will only stand for that representation. Here, it would just be a prophet of God with magical powers and not a lot else who's there to help out our other characters. Why is this harmful? Audiences will see what's familiar to them, even if it's a problematic stereotype, and latch on to that. Oh, I've seen this character before. It's John Coffey in The Green Mile. I like that character. You see enough of that now, though, and it becomes your kind of basic understanding regarding a whole group of people, which starts to perpetuate these false or harmful ideas. So think about characters with specific mental health issues. We talked about this when we reviewed the movie Split, Dissociative Identity Disorder, how for a long time you would see depictions of DID, what used to be called multiple personality disorder. Those individuals were aggressive, scary, criminal, to be feared. It wasn't true portrayals of that person. But because there was so much of that going on in Hollywood, that became a lot of people's idea of what multiple personality was or even what mental health issues were. And that's not the truth of the matter. Plus, that person who has DID isn't just a person with DID. They're a person. (laughs) When the trope becomes the whole thing that elaborates it, you take away the humanity, it becomes a problem. As we said, King struggled with a lot of this, but I think at the time he was trying to more fully explore these ideas, even when he falls short. He included characters as his main characters that we weren't seeing in novels before that. He gave them backstories. He tried to look into who they were as people outside of these things. And this was in 1978 when he was writing this. It's now 2021, and we know a lot more about this stuff. I think this series actually fell a lot harder into this problem, and it's, it's a much more glaring issue. Let me ask you, if I hadn't given you information from the novels if you hadn't seen the 94 version, what do you know about Mother Abigail here? We got one human point that they didn't even really go into, that she was in an assisted living home instead of the farm that she grew up on in Nebraska. And I thought, oh, they're going to try to go further into the humanity here and delve into what she's been dealing with before the group finds her. This could be a cool different way to do this. And then they backed right out of it. We we got about 30 seconds of that before Nick and Tom get there. I don't think I know anything else about her. So basically, she is that trope. That's all she is in this version. The thing is, it's not just her. They do it 
with Nick in a really, really troubling way. Again, I'll ask you, what do you know about Nick in this story? That he's a good guy and he's deaf and mute. Mm-hmm. But that's it. That would be the big marker, right? That he's deaf. He doesn't speak verbally. He does speak through sign language here, which is, in addition, a change from the last one. We do get a very quick scene of him getting beat up in the bar and waking up in the hospital not having really gone through any of that apocalyptic stuff. This could have been a cool way to explore that. We didn't have any of the Nick becoming deputy in Shoyo, him meeting the sheriff, telling him his life story. We didn't get any of the Nick and Tom adventures except for meeting Julie, which again was a very, very quick scene. Then we see him in Boulder, and we hear he's going to be the voice of Mother Abigail. He's actually going to maybe stand up to her and go against her in certain ways, go behind her back. Don't really see that. Um, Does he, like other characters in this story, have a shining ability? Because he seems to pick up on things like what's going to be the big culmination with the bomb being in the piano. Yeah. They never go into that. Even his death has no impact. He is reduced to this couple of lines about what is this character going to be. The real big thing here, though, the creators of this story talked a lot about how they didn't want to fall into those problematic areas, specifically with Nick and Tom, that they wanted to do this differently this time. They didn't want Tom to just be a depiction of a developmental disability. He is a person. They wanted things to be different for Nick. And so they got a lot of criticism of, okay, why didn't you hire an actor who is deaf then to actually portray Nick? Right. So one of the things they said about this is the major reason was they were going to have this really critical scene where Nick speaks to Tom. One of the ones I was hoping to see later on where he comes back. It is the spirit version of him. Mm. It's kind of like what they did here with Mother Abigail. He can hear and he can talk and he does speak with Tom. So they said they needed an actor who could do that for those scenes. We didn't get that scene. So I have to believe they filmed it if that was their whole reason for this and then just didn't include it. Uh, There's something weird going on that for a long time we thought there were going to be 10 episodes and they didn't know 100% if they were getting this coda written by King. The creators have even said that. He decided a little ways into seeing the episodes and and reading the scripts that he was going to do the coda for them. So I think they had 10 episodes planned of their own version without that new ending okay and that maybe we did get some of the stew and tom back to boulder journey maybe we did get the scene with nick and tom when they found out the new coda was coming they cut some of that down changed it and ended with king's new franny and the well ending great great for franny but it it really damages characters like nick and tom Even Tom, who I thought we were going to get a lot more of this time, that there was a lot of criticism for the 94 version for how he was depicted as, again, this trope of eternal innocence or purity, the character being almost childlike Mm -hmm. because they have a developmental disability, which is not accurate. And they were going to do something different with Tom this time around. Uh, Yet a big thing about him is this speech that he repeatedly runs through when he meets people. And one of the first sentences is, please do not be alarmed by my behavior. That's not great. I love Brad William Henke's portrayal of this. I think it has nothing to do with the actor. I think he does a fantastic job. But all of those scenes we were talking about where they start to get into him getting out of Vegas that could have really done a lot for him, Mm -hmm. they never elaborated on. No, there was not enough Tom. And there's a lot of other examples that I won't get into. You have the trope of the violent savage. We see Joe 
um, who's almost a feral boy that has these magical powers. We believe it to be The Shining because of all the backstory we've seen, but this adaptation doesn't show you a lot of that. He, mm-hmm. he actually has a scene where he shines with Larry and talks to Larry in the book. Oh, wow. That's really pretty interesting. I don't even think you actually get his real name in this version. No. Where he says his name is Leo Rockway. Um, and a ton of others. So I am not the most educated person on all of these things to speak on this. I will just say from what we have seen now with the three different versions that are out there, I think one of the other problems of not going deep enough into characters is that you wind up falling back on this very stereotypical stock idea and it becomes the one thing defining for that character because you don't have enough time to give them backstory. You don't have enough time to develop them. I would almost say then take some of these characters out because the way you're showing them as that trope and only that is more harmful not only to story writing in general, but this story of The Stand. At this point, I don't want them taking anything out. The more you tell me about Joe, I feel like it'd be very interesting to hear. Having a kid that actually has the shine, I think that's, that would be genius. That'd be a really fun part of the storyline. As we mentioned, there are some characters that they did a good job with, namely Harold, who we talked about a lot through this series. I think they really chose to focus on him. There's some interviews that the showrunners say that in the books, Stu and Franny were really your main characters that you were introduced to early on, that you were getting their point of view and Larry as well. But they felt there was a good case for Harold being the main character and they wanted to see things more through his point of view, which is very interesting. I think that they spent perhaps too much time solely focusing on him because it's it's tough to be solely inside this character's point of view situation. You know, we get a lot into the character psychology. So looking at this, psychologically, people have called him a sociopath, which is really a term that we don't use in psychology. The actual diagnosis would be antisocial personality disorder. I don't know. In some ways, I guess Harold fits this. The criteria is that you have to meet three of the following repeatedly breaking the law which what does that mean in this world there's no laws right now uh repeatedly being deceitful sure impulsive or incapable of planning ahead no irritable and reckless yes having a disregard for their safety or the safety of others being consistently irresponsible and having a lack of remorse the the main thing is his inability to connect with other people Um, really the better description of him, and this has been talked about a bunch, is not a psychological one, but a term that started off as members of an online subculture. And we're talking about incels. And they define themselves as being unable to find a romantic or sexual partner despite desiring one. So this is characterized by resentment, self-pity, self-loathing, a sense of entitlement, the endorsement of violence, while it's not a psychological condition, common states that people could go through, a negative thought pattern, perpetual cycle of anger, self-victimization, and learned helplessness. The sense that nothing you do really has an effect on what's happening in your life. And so we see that kind of represented in, yes, his relationship with Fran, but also his inability to get his writing career started, that he thinks he could be a brilliant writer, He's not taken in with the rest of the group. He's not given a spot on the committee. Nothing is going the way that it should, uh, even in this new world where all the old rules are, are gone. You know, it's been talked a lot that this wasn't really a thing yet when King was writing this. It was sort of his early precursor to it. So I definitely think they did a good job where Harold's concerned. We only got to see a little bit with Trash Can Man, which could have been interesting because... <laughs> 
You have the pyromania, which they are starting to depict pretty well, actually. I mean, some people were talking about, did we need to have the scene where he's masturbating to the explosion? But actually, this could be a big part of this. You know, the, the whole idea behind pyromania is that there's this impulse to start fire to relieve tension, internal tension, or get some kind of instant gratification. So the person will experience this emotional buildup beforehand, light the fire, and then get pleasure, gratification, or relief afterwards. Um, and so that could look like that. Uh, we just don't get to see a lot else <laughs> because we talked about in the books, there's definitely an issue of schizophrenia going on and trash has been for ECT treatments and he has PTSD and all of this other stuff. So um, we just don't really get a lot. But anyway, as we mentioned, we, we do get more into the psychology and the background and some of that other stuff in our book review. So you'll definitely hear us talk more about that there. That's going to wrap it up for this episode as far as characters and take us to a fun section for our rankings. But first... All right, Clatchers, it's promo swap time. This week, we wanted to remind you about our friends over at the Adult Beverage Film Podcast. Like having a drink and talking films? Yup. The Adult Beverage Film Podcast is your go-to podcast. Hey, Scott. Join the conversation and listen to film industry producers, actors, directors, writers share all of their experiences in the film industry. Expand your mind into films you've already seen. Plus, find new films to watch in the future. Visit adultbeverage.net or go to your favorite podcast platform and listen to Adult Beverage Film Podcast episodes today. So let's start off with our favorite episode. And since we were grading every episode with our dreams rating, we're going to go based off of that. So Christina, your highest grade in this series was a 9.5 dream ratings for the end, the very first episode. Yeah, I would definitely still pick that as my favorite. You know, we got the virus, Captain Trips is unleashed, we meet Harold and Franny. The whole thing about Stu escaping the CDC, which I actually thought they did really well in this version. Yes. I love J.K. Simmons as Starkey and that whole situation. That was the first episode? Yeah. Wow, I thought that was maybe... Yeah, you're right. It was the first. Dr. Wow. Ellis, who you loved. I think you gave yeah. your MVS to him for that one. And we just get a little bit of going over to Boulder in the present with the burial committee. I don't think they went too far into it yet. Where I was still saying, well... This time jump, it could work, mm -hmm. depending on how they do it. I did rate a 9-2 to the Vigil and a 9-3 for the Walk, which I also liked, but number one would still be my favorite. And for my favorite episode, with a ranking of 8.4, so it looks like that's the highest I ever went mm. for this series, is episode four, House of the Dead, where Harold confesses his love to Fran. We have the zoo scene, which is the truck that was in the middle of the road with that guy. Mm -hmm. And he had, that's actually when we got to meet Dana Jurgens. Uh, Nick and Tom encounter Julie. The Boulder Committee selects three spies. Nadine seduces Harold, and they kill Teddy. I forgot that so much happened in that episode. That It was really good plot-wise, and some of those character-building moments we were looking for, they had here. Like You did get a little bit of that Nick and Tom, as much as you're really going to get. This is an area where they went a little bit different the way they did the zoo, but I, I liked it, all the stuff with Harold that was changed. Yep. Um, so yeah, I definitely get that. It was a fun episode. It was really well done. And then we move on to our favorite scene or favorite scenes. So this one I had some difficulty with as far as only picking one. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it says favorite there for a reason, Jay. 
Well, I'm going to change it for myself to what scenes really stood out to me. So visually, I have two. And funny enough, they both, well, I guess I have three. Shit. Funny enough, all three happen in Vegas. My first one is when we get to see Flag get angry. And that's when Bobby Terry comes to see him because he killed the judge. I thought that scene was so well done, the way they were able to create this tension that's building up as Flag is getting angry and walking down the hall. I thought that was so awesome. Then, of course, I brought this one up as well. When Nadine jumps out the window, the way that was filmed, again, remarkable job. And then, of course, we have the lightning, God's hand, quote unquote. Uh, Visually, I thought that was very well done. But my favorite scenes as far as storylines, the scenes with Stu, the strongest scenes with Stu, unfortunately being the first episode, with everything he's going through with the CDC, I thought that was great storytelling. And that was a mixture of a lot of uh, characters acting well off of each other and showing humanity. And then finally, all the scenes pre-Boulder with my man Larry. I thought those were my favorite pre-Boulder scenes whenever he was involved. Yeah, some of my runner-ups are on your list, too. I I had Randall attacking Bobby Terry because it's the first time we really get to see the the Randall flag that I pictured. Um, The meeting of the zoo, I really thought they did a good job with here. The first town hall meeting Mm. was maybe the best group of characters getting to know them better in a quick set of sequences. You have all of them getting ready. So you're getting to see different things about what they're going through, like Larry dumping out his pills before the meeting. You're also seeing, without any exposition, just showing us, they still don't have the power back on, so they're getting ready in the dark, each person with their own setup in their new houses, and then them getting to the meeting, what their difficulties are. Even though Stu is a good person and people like him and trust him, he doesn't know how to talk to an audience This is where Larry really gets a chance to shine. I debated it being my favorite, but in the end, I do still go with the episode one, Stu and Dr. Ellis and everything that's happening at the CDC because you get this quick shot of scenes where you're really learning about what's going on with the world and all of the actors, all of the characters within that, I liked every one of them. Daniel Sanjata as Cobb, Hamish Linklater as Dr. Ellis, and of course, J.K. Simmons. Even the scenes of Campion getting out and first unleashing all of this. Uh, we mentioned when you find out Randall Flagg held the door open with his foot. I mean, that's a huge mm. change. Yeah. But I liked it. Me too. So next category is best music because this is another area where updating it was really interesting. We had the great, beautiful scoring we've talked about multiple times from the 94 version. But we had real songs put into this and I think it was a way to update it that I enjoyed. It was hard to pick. I had some runner-ups. I Promise by Radiohead during the walk episode where the gang is making their journey and we're getting the wide panning shots. Don't Take Your Guns to Town, Johnny Cash. This is the moment of getting ready for the meeting that I just talked about. Islands in the Sun was very close to making it for me. (laughs) Uh, Lloyd's flashbacks, the shootout at the store. But I have to go with Don't Fear the Reaper, Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, we didn't get that till episode five and I was wondering if we would hear it this time around. So I was really happy when we did. I'm right on par with you here. For the most part, I think they did a wonderful job with this series and their music. There was a few misses, but it wasn't too bad. My favorite, not to be Mr. Copycat, it's Don't Fear the Reaper, of course. It's synonymous with The Stand and has always been in my head. Also, though, you didn't mention your very close second has to be Billy Joel, The Stranger. 
Because that was the new addition here that you oh, really liked. yeah, I forgot. With the whistling. Very strong second. Yeah, that was so well done. Yes, thank you. And now let's move on to the best adapted character. So not necessarily our favorite character, but our favorite adaptation of the character. Oh, well, I'm gonna, probably going to copy you on this one, too. So go ahead. Who's yours, I mean, Chris? who else could it be but Harold, right? I think they did the best depiction of Harold. It's got to be Harold. But I truly love this version of Larry. If there was more of him, he would be right up there. Um, the big, the first half of this series, I would say, I would say Larry. They did a lot with Larry up to a certain point, and then he kind of fell off until the penultimate episode. I, I really liked Giovanna Depo's portrayal, but sometimes it was a little too understated for me, especially as we come into the later episodes. Mm. And the final showdown in Vegas, where I'm remembering Adam Stork and the way he he did this. And I, I liked him, especially those taking their stand scenes I thought he did well with. I'm going to have to say for somebody who maybe could have been really great, but also didn't get enough was Stu. I thought James Marston did yeah. a great job with Stu. They had the talent there. They could have pushed him more. And a couple more runner-ups. Tom loved him on screen whenever he was on. And... Kojak. <laughs> oh, so this Kojak over 94 Kojak. Uh, no, just... I uh, mean, it could be. It could, he gets his uh, wolf fight Yeah. this time, which was pretty cool. I really thought going into this, it was going to wind up being Glenn. I, I like Greg Kinnear. It was very confused. And I don't think Kinnear quite managed to save it for me. I loved any time that he was on, on the camera. Yeah, yeah, me too. I actually loved him. I think the worst miss... The worst adapted character, no surprise for me, is going to be Mother Abigail. I, I would like to just know, <laughs> I don't have the time for this, but how much screen time Whoopi had? I feel like it was pretty small. Pretty minimal. The, the only scene that I truly enjoyed and I thought, there's Mother Abigail, was in this finale where she talks to Franny. I'm going to have to agree with you yet again. Mother Abigail is the worst miss. Um... I mean, up until the last episode, I was the one complaining, right? I was saying, where is the good? Where's the hope? We need a shred of hope or a reason to keep pushing. Admittedly, I did not love what they did with Lloyd. They took a strong stance on Lloyd. And I'm happy at least they did that. Mm. They gave him a lot. I completely disagree with their vision for it. I don't like him here. But they did something with him. Yeah. Uh, I have another one. You know what? I'm going to switch mine so that we're not the same with everything. Okay. You go Mother Abigail. I'm going Nick. Well, that's a very Big easy miss. case to also make yeah. there. As we were saying with the tropes idea, what do you know about either of those two really? Yeah. I, really, I mean, I guess the only one who would be more egregious is Ray, uh, Ralph Brentner in the first one. This time around, I, I can't believe. It was a, a little bit weird that Ralph took the walk, that he was one of the ones that went with them the first time. But you kind of understood it. You, you kind of understood that he was always this understated, quiet heart of these characters, a little bit unassuming. You don't know him as well as the others, but he has real importance. And he himself almost does this depiction of, how did I wind up, <laughs> you know, in this, this spot? But he's just going with it. You don't even get that for Ray, and, and nothing against the actress at all. She gets no screen time. I didn't even think of her, to be honest with you. That's... That's how much of a misnomer. Yeah. All right. So how about Wish We'd Seen? I know there's a lot of plot points that had to be cut. 
but one specific scene, one point from the Booker, the 94, that you were just waiting to see that on screen again, or how are they going to do it this time that you were disappointed we didn't get? Well, I'll say one that I've never seen, but based off of what you've told me, more of Joe. Oh, yeah. You would have liked... I I have a feeling I would have, yeah. Um, More about Kojak. Mm. I think that would have been great. What he does for Stu when Stu is in the ravine, you would have liked that too. Just that whole, you don't fetch, do you? Like, (laughs) it's it's lovely. The scene where they then have to get Stu into the car once Tom finds him always stood out so much in my mind just from reading the books. He's gotten up and out of the ravine, as I said, because Kojak... You know, he climbed it and then Kojak managed to help him get up over the lip. And he's sort of laying there when Tom comes across him. So they have to make a travoy, a thing that Tom can carry him, drag him along to get up to the highway. He's so sick and so out of it that he basically goes unconscious and wakes up and realizes they've gone, I don't know, six miles. He's like, Tom, how did you do this? And he's like, I need a little break, but I'm okay. You're not, you're not too heavy. We're doing all right. Just amazing, real real heroism consistently from here on out for Tom. But now this perilous idea that they have to find a car and get to a town before long, or Stu knows he's going to die. And he says if they spend one more night out in the cold, he's got pneumonia. That's going to be the end of him. So they're coming across all these cars, and he knows he's going to have to get it rolling down the hill and then pop it into gear. It's the only way they're going to get the car going. So he has to find a car that's a manual, that has gas. The battery still works. His broken leg is his driving leg. So he's going to have to use the other leg to operate all this. And they need to be able to fit him and Tom and Kojak. And he's got pneumonia. Yeah. So all of the first cars that they're going through, he's having Tom check. Does that one have three pedals? No, only two. No gas in this one, no keys in this one. They get to the last one and it's some old junker. And Stu is like, that's it. I'm done. Mm. And it's like this really beat up car. No one's ever taken care of it. Fuzzy dice hanging in the mirror. (laughs) He says, it's a wonder it was standing on four tires that weren't flat. And it turns out it's manual. It has gas. The battery's still working. But now they get in there and he's going several times and it's not starting up. It's not getting going. And Tom is like, what's going on, Stu? (laughs) (laughs) Finally, they get it going. It's just this epic overcoming of that. My wish I'd seen is the whole Stu and Tom journey, but it goes from that through a bunch of other things. Like we had mentioned, getting stuck in these snowstorms, having to stay up in a hotel for months, spending Christmas together. But there's one part where they're in the hotel, and as a surprise to Tom, he goes and gets a movie projector up and running so that he almost creates their own little theater inside of the hotel and surprises Tom. And they watch a bunch of movies together. He gets popcorn. Oh, that's cool. It's just, it's very touching. I don't know. There's a bunch of really amazing moments I wish we'd gotten. That could have been great. So let's hear about some closing remarks from some of our Clatchers we put up on Twitter And Melly says, I am voting with my heart here, and my MVS is Tom. I am so disappointed we didn't get more of him. Hmm. We agree. Absolutely. Now, if I remember correctly, Chris, you said at the top of this series that CBS was willing to do multiple seasons, correct? Yeah, I know at some point that they did say that, and they did offer more episodes if they were just going to be one season. Yeah. It went through so many changes, though. I don't know. In the end, if it was a decision. Why it ended up, yeah, yeah. settling for where it did. Hey, ladies. It's the ghost of Harold calling. 
Yeah, that Harold. You know, the one who you always called so creepy? Well, in my defense, I did have it pretty rough when I was a kid. No one ever appreciated my cleverness and my talents. My parents totally ignored me. And they always liked my sister Amy the best. And speaking of Amy, she was always just a total biatch to me. All the kids in school would always make fun of me. They would call me fatty. They would call me pizza face. They would always bully me and beat me up. The pretty girls, like Christina, would never even talk to me, let alone go on a date. And the popular jocks, like Jason, would always steal my bike and give me wedgies. <laughs> and you tried being a virgin all through high school. I mean, I was like a bag of raging hormones. Even my friend Kirk told me he could relate. Well, he said, except for all that virgin stuff. And then he told me a story about some cheerleader in high school named Bonnie. And I didn't think I believed him. So, you think you can find it in your heart to forgive me? For getting a little horny once in a while and peeking over a fence or two? Anyway, I'm trying to tell you my favorite part of the stand. And it's the scene when Nick and Tom run into Julie in the warehouse. I mean, it had comedy. It had romance. Well, if you count whatever that was, that Julie tried romance. And we even had a little terror when Julie was trying to shoot both of them. Plus, there's nothing sexier than a hot girl holding a 12-gauge. Am I right, fellas? Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to get back to watch my secret TV monitors. You know, I recently installed a hidden camera in Jason at Christina's kitchen. I know the kitchen seems like a weird place to install a hidden camera. But I talked to some of your catchers, and Lewis, Mary, and Brian all told me that I definitely need to watch when you guys are kicking the chicken. This is the ghost of Harold Lauder saying bye. Oh, my God, Kirk. Okay, so there's <laughs> that's Kirk as Harold Harold, Jay. <laughs> it's Harold. Not Kirk. Um, the check in the chicken is uh, for Clatchers who don't know an inside joke. It's not going to be funny if you need to explain it. Okay, it's well, it's an inside joke from Patreon. There you go. Well, thank you, Harold, for calling in and letting us know your favorite part. And uh, Christina is mean for calling you pizza face. I would not do that. <laughs> well, let's take it to our season ratings. We've been rating each episode on a scale of one to ten dreams. So I'll tell you, what we do is we add up our averages. You can let me know if this sounds right. Despite the fact that I did rate much higher on a number of episodes, we came out pretty close. I was at an 8.4 and you at an 8. You were a lot more divisive with these. You went much higher than me in some episodes and much lower than me in other episodes. I really only went low for two of them. I gave episode five a 6.5 and that's what brought it all way down and the final one a seven. Whereas yours stayed consistently within the eight region. I I actually think an 8.4 is generous given the commentary I've been having on this, but I'm going to leave it there. I mean, obviously we said there are things that we really enjoyed this time around. Yes. So your overall average was 8.4 and mine was eight. If I was to give a revisionist history of this, now that I've seen the whole stand in its entirety, giving its prospects what they could have done with this, I would like to grade it a little lower, give it probably like a seven. Well, let me ask you this. We're going to go through a quick checklist. These are the five most difficult parts that critics say you would have in adapting the story of The Stand. So let's say if we think they got it right or wrong. Number one, the horror of Captain Trips. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say I think they got that. I'm going to say yes, they got the horror of it. Yeah. But the journey through it, I would have liked to see a lot more of. 
Yeah, not talking characters, not talking them. Time spent. Time spent, but the visuals this time of what it would look like. Yeah, I think they did all right. The scene in the hospital, the several times they went back to it, even later seeing some of the dead bodies around. They never forgot that Mm -hmm. that was a part of the story. Yeah. Number two, capturing the epic scope. This writer said we should feel the loneliness that comes with living in a dead world. The bizarro freedom that comes with being able to go wherever one pleases. The magnitude of outsized set pieces unfolding against huge backdrops. Yes or no to epic scope? No. I'm going to agree that's a big no. And I think that's one where the 94, as we mentioned, did well. Seeing so many different parts of the country, traveling Mm -hmm. across it. That's the big piece that was cut out this time around. Number three are main poles, Mother Abigail and Randall Flagg. So we have powerful, charismatic leaders that represent the polar opposites of good and evil. Mother is gentle, empathetic, understanding, wise, and shows unconditional love. Flagg is the clever plotter, trickster, charismatic, but also very scary and dangerous. Yes or no to depicting Mother and Flagg? Um, I'm going to say so-so. <laughs> <laughs> That's not an answer. All right, then I'll say no. Yeah, I'm a no too. I think at times they did good with flag. Yeah, at times, for sure. Definitely not my ideal flag. And definitely not with Mother Abigail. So that's more than half a no on that one. It's got to go no. Number four, the hand of God. Yes, I thought it was depicted very well. Not to be a broken record, up until flag. But everything else, the buildup of it coming down, I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, visually much better than than last time. Satisfying, scary. The impact of losing these characters was much lower because we weren't as attached to Larry, to Ray, to Glenn. It's underwhelming for Flag because we know he's coming back. So I'm definitely going to say yes because the depiction was much better, but it still suffers from some of those mean problems. And finally, the new ending. The circle closes, Franny in the well, yay or nay? Uh, you know what? I'm going to say yay. I think it was better than the 94 because the 94 didn't have any. But um, it could have been done a little different, tweaked a little different, um, gave us a greater understanding of why they're leaving their homestead, did not do that dumbed-down character that hasn't learned from the whole series, not to F around on a old well when she's alone you know things like that (laughs) (laughs) and i definitely say no to that one it's one of my most frustrating episodes and there's moments i like but i don't like it as the finale to this series that should actually leave me rating much lower because i have two yeses and three no's you have three yeses and two no's they got more right on adapting these hard parts than they did wrong but the problem is we hold characters up as it should be worth way more. In, especially like in this type of story. More than 50%. And that's so overwhelmingly the miss that it's tough. Well, okay, let's take it to our last thing, which is the season MVS. Who took the most valuable stand in this version for the whole series? What I will tell you is we had individuals who ranked multiple times, including Harold, Franny, and Dana. She won our polls two times. Oh, wow. Actually. Well, you know what? I'm just going to say Harold because they took the most time with him. I think they had him the most fleshed out and it was acted very well. We're not asking for more background or more of this character. They actually did a good job with that. So I'm going to go Harold. 
I keep talking about depiction for Harold and how he wins all of these things. And while I wasn't 100% on what they did with it, I'm going to go Larry here. If I think about things he actually did, getting himself out of the city, the relationship he established with Joe, how he managed to turn things around for himself, and some of that really difficult stuff with Nadine towards the end, I think we saw the fullest arc for him. Yeah. Still. I I will fear no evil. Uh, You're right. You're right. And he is one of my favorite characters, like I said earlier. Most change, most journey, Mm. start to finish. I like that. So, Jason, any final thoughts on the 2020 CBS All Access? Of course, this conversation isn't done yet, but for now, anything else to say about this version? I'll tell you this. I'm glad we had it, and I'm glad we covered it. For as much as it has been lacking, it was still fun to watch. It wasn't boring at any times. There was a lot of great visuals, a lot of great actors. And I want to thank the Clatchers for listening and uh, for giving us ratings and reviews over there on iTunes. Thank you guys so much. We hope that you stick with us. Just a reminder, we're coming back. You've got three more weeks of us on The Stand Alone. But also, don't forget that we've also covered shows like The Magicians, Game of Thrones, Westworld, the final season of Sherlock, uh, Mr. Robot, of course, and Big Little Lies. Uh, Enjoy those podcasts. And don't forget, if you want more from us and you want to support Christine and myself, there's always Patreon. This week, we're going to give you a Denzel Washington movie review, The Little Things. So that should be fun. Yeah. And if we were at times a little bit too down on this version, I can promise if you're thinking about tuning in for the book reviews, we are super in love with our talks over there. And It's a concentration on the positives. Yeah. The greatness of the writing, a fun exploration of topics we didn't think about. So we hope you'll stay tuned for that. There is always amazing stuff happening on Patreon. Definitely make sure you, tech, you check out coffeeclatchcrew.com. What we have going on, click on the Patreon tab, take a look. And for these channels, in the near future, after the book review, we'll be back for more fun stuff. So even if you're not interested in that or you're not following these other things, keep an eye out because there's bound to be something you like in the future and some new formatting. So if you're only subscribed to the Stan channel... We suggest uh, searching Coffee Clatch Crew and subscribe to our main channel. That's our main feed that has all of our shows together. This way you don't miss out. Or at least follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast or Facebook or Instagram. Jason, even though we're done with this, can I still be in the way of knowing things? Absolutely. And of course, until next episode, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. This round is on me.